Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. We are in a teaching series entitled Important Prophecy Terms, and we're comparing and contrasting seven sets of terms. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we have just completed point number one, or the first set of two terms where we looked in some length uh, in detail at the term the Son of God and compared and contrasted that with the term the Son of Man. These are in capital letters, therefore they are referring to Jesus Christ as opposed to man, where, and the reason I make that point, and we looked at several scriptures as we looked initially at the term the Son of God, that we find that, uh, for instance, Adam, when he was created, was referred to as the Son of God. We see the angels, because they were created directly by God, were referred to as sons of God, and also the church, because remember, the Scripture tells us very clearly that the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a new creation. And who brings about that creation in you? God. Therefore, he refers to you as a son, or if you will, a daughter of God, because in your spiritual state, you are a direct creation, and you have eternity to look forward to in direct relationship, uh, both physically and spiritually, with God, uh, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. And uh, that should be a sense of great hope, a great expectation to see that um, fulfilled when we see Jesus Christ face-to-face at the rapture and then immediately following the rapture, the Bema Seat Judgment, where we are uh, rewarded for our work here on the earth as Christians. And then we, of course, compared that with the Son of Man, and we know that the lowercase form of Son of Man is used a number of times, particularly in the Old Testament, to refer to the various authors of the different books such as Ezekiel and so forth, they're referred to as the Son of Man. And um, so as we we have finished those two, hopefully you have uh, grasped the understanding that when you see the term in capital letters, the Son of God, we're talking about Jesus uh, as a rewarder uh, for works after you became a Christian. So it's a very positive thing. There is no sin involved in the term the Son of God at all. He's referring, uh, describing himself uh, as um, to, to believers, as a rewarder of those believers. Contrary-wise, the Son of Man, again, it's Jesus, but he is manifested as the one coming uh, in the clouds, Matthew 24 and other places, coming to the earth to judge that uh, the the uh, the book of John chapter five very clearly points out the Son of God is coming to reward the Son of Man is coming to punish. So you know that the term Son of Man is re, is used uh, with uh, unbelievers 
the term son of God is used with believers. So hopefully you've grasped that as we've gone through those number of scriptures over the last number of programs. But we're going to transition today into point number two, and you see that on your worksheet that you can download from this radio station, whcbradio.org, and follow along with us. And I pray that you do, because we've got a lot of scriptures. You saw that from point number one, and uh, we will continue that as we go through these next six sets of terms in preparation for our next teaching series, which I'm excited about, and that has to do with the 30 prophetic events. Uh 30 prophetic events that are listed in the Bible that are going to take place uh, starting from today going forward to eternity, which we find described uh, in the last uh, couple of chapters of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. But in the meantime, we want to um, look at point number two, and here we are basically, um, I'll just tip you off here at the beginning. We're looking at the difference between term, a term that relates to the rapture of the church and another term that relates to a period of time that is highlighted by the second coming of Christ. And this is the second coming when he's coming as the Son of Man to judge the world. So as we just finished up in point number one, you could pretty much directly associate the Son of God with the with the day of Christ, and you can associate the Son of Man with the day of the Lord. Hopefully that makes sense. And as we go through these scriptures over the next several programs, this will become more and more clear. So to begin with, let's look at the day of Christ. This is a very positive thing, something that the Bible says over and over again that believers should be eagerly awaiting is the day of Christ, the day of the rapture. So let's go to Philippians, go to the New Testament, and get through uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and then we get into uh, Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. So hopefully you've found that in your Bible. And uh, if you've been with us for any period of time, you know that we we wear the Bible out, and we may go back and forth um, to the same scriptures over and over again, and you may think that that's a little... Um, you might even think it's a little boring, but I hope I hope that uh, as we go through this, you don't see it as boring and as tedious, but it actually is helping us to grow, grow in so many different perspectives. One is just where are the books, where are the key passages, the key chapters and the key verses, and you learn that by going to them over and over again, but also you see that as you go through these um if you will, the Bible, the old, the church has called it the Bible drill. As you go back and forth, you start to see how the Bible answers itself. The Bible complements itself that you don't see. Um, it's black over here and white over here. If it's white here, it's white throughout. If it's black here, it's black throughout. So you don't see any dichotomies. You don't see any, you scratch your head and say, well, that doesn't make sense. Um, we do, we do, though, need to differentiate as we go through the Bible, is God uh, or the, the author through the leading of the Holy Spirit talking about believers, or are they talking to unbelievers? Uh, we need to make that clear distinction, and that's why we're going through these seven sets of terms, to help us clearly identify these distinctions when we see them, and we don't let them, be, um, don't let them flow together and lose 
the the purposeful distinction that the the Lord, the Holy Spirit, wants us to see in these um, different prophetic terms. And again, the day of Christ and the day of the Lord is a very clear example that we have in point number two. So let's go to Philippians, Philippians chapter one, and let's look at verse six. And this is a prayer of Paul to the church at Philippi. And he says in verse six, for I am confident of this very thing that he capitalized. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, until the day of Christ Jesus. So you can see that this prayer is very positive, very uplifting, and verse 6 is very much so, because Paul, the author, is saying, I'm confident of this. I am confident because I've been, remember, Paul was taught by Jesus. He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was taught by him when he was in the Arabian desert for that period of time before he ever came out and started his, uh, went on his three missionary journeys and ultimately ended up in Rome, imprisoned and then then, uh, killed, that he was taught personally. So he's saying, I am confident of this very thing. And the way you could say it is, I wasn't taught this by a man. I was taught this by the Lord. I am confident of this very thing, verse 6, that he, referring to Jesus, who began a good work in you, or the the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit as well, could be he. He who began a good work in you will perfect it, will bring it to conclusion. And when will that conclusion take place? The day of Christ, when we see the Lord face to face at the Bema seat following the rapture of the church. So we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the Lord working within us, and that's what happens the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit comes into you. We've talked about that over and over again on this program, on this uh, uh, ministry, I should say, over many programs, that the Holy Spirit comes into you and will never leave you. This is the Spirit of God who is there wanting nothing more than to teach you everything about God's Word. We learned that in in John chapter 16. He wants to teach you all the Scriptures, but you have to let Him do that. You, uh, dear Christian, can be a stumbling block to yourself. You can actually be a block to the Holy Spirit working in and through you. You have to recognize that He's there. You have to recognize what He wants to do for you, with you, and through you to bring about the glorification of Jesus Christ, which is really what we're all about, is to please God through his Son and be about his work. And that all is manifested in and through you through the working of the Holy Spirit. So basically what it's saying here in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1 is the moment you accepted Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit came into your life, a good work was started. So a good work is started in you, and who's the one that's going to perfect it? It's the Holy Spirit working in and through you. Um, People want to say that it's all up to us, it's all about us, we bring about our salvation, we bring about the good things and so forth. We are merely the hands and the feet. It says very clearly right here that the good work that's going on in you is being begun and is brought to perfection by someone else. Someone else that starts with a capital H, he, and that's 
the triune Godhead. That's the Holy Spirit principally working in and through you. And it will be brought to conclusion. It will be brought to perfection when? The day of Christ Jesus. There's nothing negative in here. There's nothing judgmental in here to even suggest that this relates to the second coming of Christ when Christ comes back as the Son of Man, as we've been learning in uh, our prior uh, point one in this series, looking at the difference between the Son of God and Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes, he's coming principally to judge. He's coming as a thief in the night, as we learned in Matthew chapter 24. He is not coming to reward, as it were, although there will be rewards for those that are found righteous, and we'll talk about that at at another time. But this is talking about the church uh, as an entity, which is not brick and mortar. It's a spiritual church made up of believers, bondservants of Jesus Christ, as it says, as you you look in Philippians chapter 1, just look at the first verse. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Well, we are too. Um, Continuing on in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. You are a saint. The moment you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and and Savior, you are a saint. And that's something to be grasped. That's something to be pondered on and to understood because when you realize that you are a saint, that you've been bought for, You've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ when it tells us to walk worthy in Ephesians and other books in the Bible, to walk worthy because of who you are and what you know. You can you can sense that this is all due to the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. And it says that Holy Spirit will continue to work in your life. It's a process that's called sanctification. The moment that you are saved, it's called justification, that you have been justified before a holy God. Your sins have been forgiven. Then, as you live your life out here on the earth with the Holy Spirit living in you, working in you and through you um, as a Christian in the world, as a um, um, shield against evil, as it says in uh, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that we are restrainers of evil until we're taken out of the way uh, at the rapture, that we have a very important task to perform here on the earth, all of which has the primary and, and total focus of glorifying God, to please God in what we do. But that work is, in, is ongoing in you, and it will be completed. Hopefully you see that. Clearly, in in verse number six, he who began a good work in you will perfect it. It doesn't say has a 50% chance or he might perfect it. Depends on how good you are and so forth. It says he will perfect it in you. He will bring it to a full, glorious conclusion on a specific day, the day of Christ, the day when we see Jesus face to face. Remember, the moment you're saved— Uh, You were saved. Then there's a sanctification process as you become more and more Christ-like through the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. That that period of time, you can say you're being saved more and more. But when you see Jesus face-to-face in your glorified body, then you will be fully saved. 
You are not totally saved until you see him face to face. That's why we're told in Ephesians and other places that the Holy Spirit, when he comes into your life, he comes in as a deposit, as a guarantee of something yet future. Because you cannot be fully saved. In other words, you cannot stand before holy, righteous God until you are totally pure, until you are totally saved. That will not happen. You will not be in that condition, spiritual condition, until you stand before Jesus at the Bema seat. At that point, you will be totally acceptable to God. You can then be in the presence of God because you will be totally sinless. You will be totally saved. Remember, you are currently saved as a Christian from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is death. You you are not, uh, when you die, if you were to die here on this earth before the rapture, the Bible says basically you are asleep because you will be resurrected from that death into eternal life. So we need to we need to understand that whole concept and how glorious that is of what's happening to us uh, while we're here on the earth, knowing that the Holy Spirit is in you and is working to perfect you because you must be perfect on the day that you stand before Christ, and you will be. That is a guarantee that, as they say in the vernacular, you can take to the bank. So... Let's um, we're we're wearing uh, Philippians one six out. Let's move on and stay in Philippians chapter one, and let's look at verse ten, and we'll go over that, and we will build on that and others in in our following programs. But let's look at Philippians chapter one verse ten, just down here a few more verses, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, the day of Christ. And you see that the day of Christ is up there in verse 6. We now see it here in verse 10, until the day of Christ. So it's talking about gaining in our knowledge, verse 10, gaining in our uh, discernment that comes from a study of the Bible, that your love may abound, that it might grow, that you can be sincere and blameless. Uh, while we're here on the earth doing the work of the Lord through the gifting of the Holy Spirit. That's the life of a Christian. And all of this is being done until the day of Christ, uh, when we will be found perfect, as we find up in verse 6. So we, we see again the day of Christ is relating to a period of time yet future when we will be in our perfect state. Well, the only place in the Bible that describes that is the rapture of the church the perfect state when we stand before Jesus in our glorified body. Okay, we're going to stay in Philippians in our next program as we continue to explore Scripture dealing with the day of Christ, and we contrast that with the day of the Lord. So I'm excited about continuing this point number two in our study of prophetic terms. But as we always do, let's move on to our Q&A period, and let's continue on. We're in Matthew chapter 25. So if you would, let's go over to Matthew 25, back to the left in your Bibles, to the first of the Gospels, right towards the end there. And of course, in Matthew 25, this is a part of what's called the Olivet Discourse that we've been talking about. And this is when 
Jesus is in the early part of his week that he is going to be crucified in. He's in Jerusalem. He's been preaching in the temple, and now the he and a handful of the 12 apostles have gone up to the Mount of Olives, which is looking over the Temple Mount from the east, looking west, across the Kidron Valley. And they're asking him the question about um, when Jesus is saying, not, not, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will, all, which will not be torn down. That's verse 2 of Matthew 24. Um, they're asking him the question, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And as we've pointed out before, Matthew, uh, Matthew's account, he answers, uh, he allows uh, or writes, if you will, Jesus' answer to the uh, second and third questions there. What about your, what's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And then the, uh, the uh, writer Luke answers uh, the first one as well about uh, when will these things happen. Luke describes 70 A.D., uh, when everything will be torn down. But Jesus is talking about uh, your sign of your coming and the end of the age, and that's talking about the tribulation period and his second coming. The end of the age is culminated with the second coming of Christ. So if we understand that, we can go through Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, knowing that that's all part of one talk, one talk called the Olivet, meaning olives, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is answering those two questions for the apostles. And he's talking about um, giving us an example in Matthew 25, where we've been using the parable of the ten virgins to talk about how the Holy Spirit manifests himself in the tribulation period. And again, the, the Holy Spirit manifests himself in the tribulation just as he did in the Old Testament. He would come on a righteous person and stay with that righteous person as long as that person remained righteous. But as we read in Ezekiel 33 and other places, uh, as part of this uh, Q&A, we find that the Holy Spirit, if you are righteous and then turn to iniquity, the Holy Spirit would leave you. And if you die at a point in time when you are in iniquity, you wouldn't be sent to hell. If you die at a point in your life when you are righteous, the Holy Spirit is with you, you would go to eternal life. So it was a matter of your righteousness um, that if you maintained it to the end, you would be saved. So when we go to Matthew 24, verse 13, and it says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. That means the Jew during the tribulation, which is Jesus is answering, describing, and answering for them. The Jew, or really anyone during the tribulation, even though he's talking to Israel, it's anyone in the tribulation who makes it to the end and is found righteous, they will be saved. If they get bodily to the end of the tribulation and are judged as unrighteous, they will go to hell. So there's a very clear distinction there. So that's how the Holy Spirit is functioning during the tribulation. And the evidence, I think the very clear evidence that we have of that in Matthew 25 is the parable of the ten virgins. And we were going in our last program through several um, uh, contrasts, if you will, between this depiction of the second coming of Christ 
and the depiction of the rapture of the church. And we read that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. And we read that um, verbatim a couple of programs ago to give us some context here for comparison and contrasting. And we see very clearly that the terms that are used in Matthew 25, 1 through 13, the parable of the ten virgins, you do not see those terms used in the rapture of the church. So we were going through some of those, and let's very quickly run through those again and continue on here, that uh, first of all, the context is different. Here, uh, Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 are part of the same talk. We know that because of verse 1 of chapter 26 says, when Jesus had finished all these words, so there's the conclusion. So Jesus is answering the apostles, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So that's what he's answering. And he does it, as we've pointed out several times before, he does it through eight parables. There are eight parables starting in Matthew 24, verse 32, and going through all the, all the way through to the end of Matthew 25. And the, the theme, if you will, the point that Jesus is trying to get across in all eight of the parables is be ready, maintain your righteousness to the end so that you can be saved. And when he gets to Matthew 25, verse 1, this is the sixth of the eighth parable. So parable number six, he's talking about ten virgins um, that are coming to see the bridegroom who is who's expected to come. And it talks about five of them are foolish and five of them are prudent. And pastors have taken that out of context to say that this is a partial rapture passage where the prudent, those who maintain the oil, and of course, when you see oil in the Bible, that's almost always a reference to the Holy Spirit. And in context, that makes very good sense here, that oil is the Holy Spirit. The prudent maintained the Holy Spirit all the way to the end, the end being signified by the coming of the bridegroom. And of course, this would be the second coming. And then there are five foolish who let their oil or let the Holy Spirit go away. In other words, they were practicing unrighteousness. They were practicing iniquity. And they say that this is partial rapture in that there are going to be the the super Christians that maintain their righteousness, they're going to go in the rapture, and the five foolish that did not are going to have to go through the tribulation. Well, there's there's nothing in context here to give any suggestion of that, um, both, again, in, in overall context of the whole Olivet Discourse as well as the details here in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. We looked at the fact that there is no reference to the bride here, just the bridegroom. Well, the church is the bride. These are maidens. These are virgins that are talked about. And by the way, there's 10 of them. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the church is one chaste virgin, just one, not 10. We see that there's no reference to bride. We see there's no reference to the body, which would be the body of uh, Christ, the believers. Uh, there's no, no term in Christ found here. There's no reference to a translation of the living at the rapture. There's no reference to the resurrection of the dead in Christ at the uh, the rapture of the church. And we see that the bridegroom comes to the earth in bodily form. Well, that's the second coming. The bridegroom does not come to the earth. He comes in the air 
uh, during the rapture. Okay, we will continue this in our in our next program. Remember, if I don't if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.